We're kicking off a, a new mini-series of sermons. I think it's going to go uh, three to four weeks on marriage, uh, on singleness, marriage, and parenting. Uh, after we did the poster, I was thinking maybe we should have dating in that too. Uh, and so maybe we still will. We'll, uh, you know, actually there's such a limited theology of dating. Um, if, if at all, there is a theology of dating. You know, that's something that we're going to be, hopefully we'll look at, touch upon that as well in the series. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm going to invite Varsha to come and read uh, the scripture portion for us. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians seven twenty-seven to 34 Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as they as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thank you, Varsha. Uh, for the first two weeks in this series, we're going to be reflecting on singleness and marriage. Um, diving pretty deep into this chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in, in great detail. Uh, we read only portions of that chapter. We'll, we'll read more and look at it next week as well. This chapter has a lot of insights to offer, both on singleness and marriage. It clarifies the true meaning and purpose of singleness and marriage. And just to give us a little bit of context, the Apostle Paul, a disciple of Christ Jesus, he wrote this letter to the Corinthian church that's captured for us as part of God's word, the Bible. And the city of Corinth was a very highly promiscuous culture. In that culture, the social ethic of that culture is you had to get married and you had to have an heir. And after that, as a man, you're free to have as many women as you please. That's the kind of culture. You're free to have as many women as you please, and you're free to have as many men as you please. That was how promiscuous the culture of that time was. So if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is addressing some of these sins that actually exist in the church. He is calling out those sins. He does that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the chapter we're going to be looking at, he presents a high view of both singleness and marriage. We're going to be looking at singleness this week and marriage next week. 
you know, we all see singleness and marriage as uh, contrasting states of life. They're like chalk and cheese. Life looks very different when we are single and when we are married, which is true. However, if we see singleness and marriage through the prism of being true followers of Christ Jesus, then the two are not contrasting at all. So the big idea from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that we're going to be dwelling on this week and the next is this. Both singleness and marriage are two different pathways to the same destination. Singleness and marriage are two different pathways that lead to the same ultimate goal, the creation of a Christ-displaying gospel community. This, incidentally, is also the goal, the ultimate goal of parenting. So that's the big idea. The goal of singleness, the goal of marriage, is, to, is the creation of Christ-exalting, Christ-displaying gospel community. Uh, today's sermon is going to feel a little different from what we generally do at New City. What I have for us today is a bunch of uh, observations, uh, uh, some biblical observations, some cultural exegesis, and comments that will hopefully help us understand, appreciate, and enjoy and live out singleness in a godly way. So I'd like to present you eight observations connecting 1 Corinthians 7 to our lives here in Mumbai. Eight observations for today. First, almost 50% of us will experience singleness for extended seasons. That's the first observation. Almost 50% of us will face, will experience singleness for ex- extended seasons. We all tend to think of singleness only in the younger part of our lives. But the reality of life is that singleness is not just a young person's issue. If you're married, there is a 50% probability that you will experience singleness towards the end of your life. Your spouse, or you, either of you, will be the first to leave this earthly home and be with our Lord Christ Jesus. And your spouse may have to wait. You may have to wait, if your spouse is the one who leaves first, to join them, uh, to join, to be with the Lord when your time comes. So all of us who are married, we're also going to be single. So if you're married and if you've already zoned out of the sermon, thinking, what do I have to do with singleness? You know, that's why I had this as the first point of my sermon. Right? So don't, don't zone out. You need to build a theology of singleness for yourself. If we don't, we're going to be in trouble because one day there's a 50% probability that those of us who are married will be single again. One more thing. India is becoming more and more urban. Today, about 400 million people or a third of India's population live in cities. By 2050... 50% of India's population, or 800 million people, will be living in in cities. So as India urbanizes, the proportion of singles in the population is going to be higher. Why do I say that? Because life is just harder in a city. 
education is becoming longer, careers are becoming more demanding, more consuming, the city is more expensive to live in, so even if you want to get married, you might not have a home to live in, in a city, because rentals are just so expensive, most of us know that in, 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 in Mumbai, and, and the reality is most of, most of us who are single are just too busy to find a spouse. We're just so caught up in our careers and all the things in life that we're just too busy to find a spouse. And so this reality that in urban societies, singleness is going to become longer and longer is a global reality. All global cities are experiencing this. So we are going to see, whether we like it or not, whether it's good or bad, we're going to see longer spells of singleness. That's the first observation I want to draw out. The second observation I wanted to draw out from this chapter is that the Bible takes a very high view of singleness. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, and if you are a married person, you were probably a little uncomfortable in your seats this morning. Uh, This chapter almost seems to suggest that, that singleness is the preferred state of Christian being. If you read the passage, it's as if Paul is making a concession. If you have no other choice, Go ahead, get married. That's what he seems to be sharing here. We look at more. That's not exactly what he's sharing, but we look at that more next week. Verse 27, if you don't have a wife, don't seek one. Verse 32, a single person, a single person is free to please the Lord, but if you're married, you're going to, be, you're going to have so many anxieties. And in the time that Paul wrote this, the Apostle Paul wrote this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is remarkable that he takes this view of, of singleness. In that ancient Jewish Greco-Roman church, strong Greece and Greek influence, strong Roman influence, Jewish culture that the early church was ma- born in, marriage was everything. It was like the most important thing in the lives of those people. Because if you don't get married and have an heir, you have no honor. You have no legacy. Legacy. You have no purpose. It, it might as if you were non-existent. The greatest shame of that culture, the greatest failure of that culture was not to have an heir. So if you had no children, and you can't have children unless you marry, even in that culture, you have no meaning. You have no purpose. You have no name. You are irrelevant to society. And that culture idolized marriage. Singleness in that culture was frowned upon. You know, there was a Roman emperor named Augustus. He imposed a fine on widows. If you're a widow and you don't get remarried within two years, you have to pay the state a fine, like a widow tax. You had to get married. Singles were irrelevant in society. It was in this time that Paul is calling singles to consider the joy and meaning and purpose of, of, of singleness. The Bible takes a very high view of singleness. We all know how much Indian culture celebrates marriage. If you're single, your uncle and aunt, I guess, are the people you hate the most in life. Because they never forget to ask you, Beta, you, you know what, what happens. In Indian culture, there is no relevance, there is no value of singles in community. 
in Indian tradition and Indian culture, the only place where a single is relevant is if he goes up to the mountains to become a monk. See, there you're relevant. That kind of singleness is accepted. But to be single and to live in society is not accepted. There is no value in, in Indian culture in being single and in living in, in, in the midst of human society. So Christianity is, is the first and even now perhaps the only religion where you can be single and play an integral role in the church and in the society outside. Only the Bible teaches us that you can be single and live in society and be fruitful and have value, meaning, worth, and significance. The Bible does celebrate marriage. We'll see a little bit of that next week. But it does seem to say, at least in this portion, that singleness is actually better than marriage. But why? Why this change? Because if you, if you see Christianity came, Jesus came from Jews, and Jews celebrated marriages. Christianity also celebrates marriages. We'll look at that next week. But why does the Bible seem to elevate singleness even over marriage? The answer is right there in the passage. The Apostle Paul says, the appointed time is very short. Christ is coming again. And when he comes again, the present world, the world in its present form is passing away. Christ is coming back again. When Christ comes back, our earthly marriages will not be the most important thing. The only thing that's going to, the only marriage that's going to last all of eternity is the marriage of us as the church with Christ, our bridegroom, Messiah. And so as believers, we are called not only to live for the earthly marriage, but we are called to live even more so for our eternal wedding with the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. So Jesus came to forgive us of our sins, to atone for our sins, and to establish a new spiritual family, the church that will last longer than the biological family. The Bible teaches us that it is possible to remain single and live a joyful, fruitful life without a biological family. It says it is possible. You can be single. You can choose not to have a biological family and live a fulfilled life, but you cannot live a full life without the spiritual family, the church. It's okay to be single, but it's not okay as a follower of Christ not to be connected to the spiritual family, the church. That's, that's a paradigm, completely new paradigm that Paul is inviting us to see. This has great implications missionally. We saw earlier that singleness is a greater and greater reality in urban India. And if urban India has, is going to have more and more singles, then single India needs the gospel because only the gospel can give meaning, value, worth, and significance to a single life that's lived in the honor of Christ. That's the second observation that I wanted to draw out. The third observation I wanted to share is not a biblical observation, but, but an but a, a observation from our history, from New City's history. And that's this. New City Church was planted mostly by singles, not couples. 
Uh, most of you uh, who've been with New City for a long time, I can bet every one of you were single in the early days. I can see the hands go up. Uh, you're married now. For a long time, you know, for the first two to three years, Aji and I were the only couple in the church. Everybody else was so single. And I remember praying and asking leaders over us to pray for us, God, please send couples. Please send couples. And, and so the reality, and right now it might not seem that way, God has heard and answered our prayers, praise be to God. Uh, but in the early stages, it was only singles. And so, so New City is kind of unique in that sense in God's sovereign plan. I, can, I, can, I definitely did not sign up for a church full of singles in the first three to four years. But we began to see God's plan. And that's one of the reasons why we really began to understand the biblical value of, of singleness. Something else. You know, even now, 60 to 70% of all our volunteers are singles. That's reality. And I'm not saying this in judgment, so if you're married, please don't get offended. It's just a statement of fact. You know, as we get married and as we grow in our careers... And, and become parents, our ability to serve in the church does come down drastically. So if you're married, I'm going to talk to you about that next week. You know, I, I hope, Aji and I, we be in godly examples of how we can serve Christ and the church through all stages of marriage and parenting. So generally in a church, in most churches... The couples and the, and the older people, they help build the church to serve the youth. New City, it's the other way around. It is the young people who build the church early on so that married couples and, and older people can come in and enjoy God's blessing. This is God's plan. We did, definitely did not design it uh, this way. So I want to take a moment this morning to celebrate all the singles, even if you're married now, uh, much against Paul's desires. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <clears throat> Even if you're married now, I want to celebrate all the singles, past and present, for the way they have sacrificially served in every way, in generosity, in serving, in using their gifts to build God's church for God's glory. I want to celebrate you. New City would not have existed without the labor and the sacrifice and the joy and the commitment of countless singles. Some of them are not even here. They moved on to other cities and, and other countries. So we want to celebrate singles. Well, now that I've celebrated singles, I can challenge them. And I've earned the right to lovingly confront them. And that brings us to the, to the next observation I want to draw out from this passage. Singles also need to acknowledge and repent of their selfishness. So if you're a single, allow me to ask two questions. Two questions. Why are you single? And what are you doing with your singleness? Why are you single? And what are you doing with your singleness? Let's start with the first question. Why are you single? Some of us are single because we are waiting with faith waiting for God to bring the right person into our lives. And if you're waiting like that, we want to celebrate you. What you're doing is a step of faith. I know there are a lot of options out there, a lot of very attractive options, very attractive options with people who are not followers of Christ. And yet you have faithfully, prayerfully waited. And we want to celebrate that. God will 
honor that. So I need to say that up front. But I also need to say that some of us are single because we just love our freedom too much. Some of us are single because we are afraid of commitment. We live in a, in a, in a, in a Netflix and chill culture. We don't want to commit. We want to flirt. We want to date. We want to have sex. But we don't want commitment. The Bible's idea of singleness, the high view of singleness that the Bible and Christ Jesus is giving us is not freedom from commitment. On the contrary, this passage tells us that you should be single because you can give more to God and the church. The Bible calls us to singleness so it can be give us, invite us and enable us to make a greater commitment. So biblically, singleness is not freedom from commitment, but culturally, singleness has become freedom uh, from commitment. Another reason we, some of us who are single, are single is FOMO, fear of missing out. If I commit to this person, what if there is a better person? What if someone better comes along? And so that fear is just so strong in some of us that we never commit to anyone. A third reason, yet another reason, is we're just too busy with our careers. Career is a, a career is a good thing. It's a gift from God. Work is designed, instituted by God, just as marriage is. But what has happened is many of us, we have absolutized our career. A career has become a value, worth, and significance just as having an heir became the value, worth, and significance of the people in the culture that Paul was originally writing, writing this in. We've just become so consumed in a career that just no time to find a spouse. The early church embraced singleness by sacrificing the option of having a heir, which was the most important thing in their culture. Having a child was everything. And they sacrificed that to remain single and to serve Christ. And if you're single, I do have to challenge you, if I'm indeed faithful to God, say, would you be willing to set aside your career and serve God. Again, don't hear me wrong. We are not following a dualistic thing. Career is not different from serving God. Career is a way of serving God. But there are times and seasons where we can set aside our careers to serve more missionally. For example, if you're in college, would you consider, when you graduate from college, giving a year to serving the church before you pursue higher studies or a job? Have you ever thought of that? Is, this, is that even in your paradigm? Or if you're already working, have you ever considered taking a one-year sabbat sabbatical to serve somewhere? Next week, we're going to start, share a little bit more about global missions. Have you thought about giving aside a year of our lives for global missions? See, that's when we're not absolutizing our career. We're willing to lay it on the altar to serve God in other ways. Serving God through a career is also one way, but we want to be open to other ways as, as well. What are you doing with your singleness? Is, are you devoting your singleness to building your career? Or are you devoting your singleness to just have fun and life is one party after another? 
life is one break after another. We're living from one break after another, one party after, after another. And these have become the greatest joys of our life. That's not the singleness the Bible is calling us to. The Bible is calling us to a singleness where we, we are devoted to serving God. What are you doing with your singleness? I do want to take a minute to talk to men and women here. Single men. Single men, do not settle for easy pornography as a way of seeing through the season of singleness. I am not naive. You know, when we pour ourselves into a career, when we give in day and day out, when we pour all of ourselves to a career, there'll come a time when we're just so exhausted, when we just want to, you know, zone out and take a break. And in those moments, the temptation of pornography is so high. It is real. It is real. Is that the life you're living, working like crazy and then needing a break, needing an outlet and just giving yourself into pornography? Is that what is happening in your singleness? Not meaningfully able to pursue the design for marriage and togetherness that God has placed in our hearts. We're so busy with our lives that we're not, we don't have time to pay heed to that. And we just find shortcuts to have that desires, godly desires met in sinful ways. Single women. I know women tend to struggle with pornography too, but generally, perhaps women struggle in different ways. Single women. Are you living in the fake joy and strength that you find when men hit on you? Flirting just enough to get that attention that, that keeps us going for a, for, a, for, a, for a few weeks. Flirting just enough to get that attention and finding strength, fake strength and fake joy in that attention and in that never con- committing to anyone for years and years and years. Again, having our good godly desires for marriage and togetherness being met in sinful ways because we're just too preoccupied with other things, every one of which we have elevated to a higher place than Christ in our lives. Simple question. If you're single, I would encourage each of us who are single to reflect on. Is my singleness biblical or is my singleness self-centered? Is my singleness biblical or is my singleness self-centered? That brings us to the next, the fifth thing, observation that I want to draw from the passage. And that's the big idea we're going to be dwelling on. Singleness and marriage are both different pathways that lead to the same ultimate goal, the creation and and building up of a Christ-displaying gospel community. You know, if you notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is not writing a separate letter to singles and another separate letter to couples. He is not calling a separate singles conference one week and then following that up with a separate couples conference another week. No, he's teaching singles and couples together. Why is that? Why is Paul doing that? The answer is a simple one. There are many things that singles and married couples need to learn from each other. And Paul understands that. And he's calling us to understand that, which is why a church must have a healthy mix of both singles and couples always. 
when singles look at godly couples who prioritize both biological family and the spiritual family the church when singles look at godly couples who both who who who, who um, serve the family and the church both well they will learn to deidolize both singleness and marriage you know singleness singles can can idolize singleness too and as they can idolize marriage but to see a godly couple will help singles deidolize both singleness and marriage similarly when a married couple couple looks at godly singles who are serving Christ in the church devotedly and joyfully they learn by looking at the singles to deidolize marriage and the biological family so if you're married we're all vulnerable to prioritize in a in a uh, unhealthy manner the biological family over the spiritual family god has not called us to do one at the expense of the other both are godly callings both are godly vocations and we're called to do both but couples can look at singles and learn to deidolize marriage singles and married couples have much to learn from each other but here is the greatest beauty of singles and married couples flourishing together in a church like this here's the beauty of it when an explorer or someone who's not a follower of Christ walks into church and sees both singles and married couples full of joy in Christ serving one another loving one another and creating a community of serving one another they are going to be drawn to faith in Christ because they can see that Christ is for all people single or married they can see that irrespective of your station in life Christ can fulfill you deeply and so it is important for explorers who walk in to come and see singles and couples flourishing together in a church singleness and marriage are both different pathways that lead to the same ultimate goal the creation of Christ displaying gospel community sadly we all often allow our singleness and our marriage to distract us from the primary goal of singleness and marriage so singles generally either tend to idolize singleness or they tend to demonize it they idolize singleness by celebrating the freedom the 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 assumed freedom that they think they have in in being single and and no need to make commitment that's idolizing singleness at the same way they demonize singleness by saying if i'm single there is no romantic love there's no sexual love in the absence of marriage but the bible reminds us that singleness is not a curse and the bible also emphasizes that singleness is not an excuse to live as we please the bible reminds us that both singleness and marriage is not just for mere personal fulfillment singleness and marriage are both different pathways that lead to the same ultimate goal the creation of Christ displaying gospel community the sixth observation from the passage if the ultimate goal of both singleness and marriage is the creation of a Christ displaying gospel community this should shape who you date and who you marry 
They've established that God's plan for marriage is not just personal happiness and personal fulfillment. Of course, it includes our personal fulfillment, but it's not limited to our personal fulfillment. God's plan for a husband and a wife to come together is to create a gospel community, even in the marriage, a gospel community in the marriage that displays Christ to the world. That's God's plan. This is God's non-negotiable design for marriage in the New Testament and in the Old even. But if a follower of Jesus gets married to someone who's not a follower of Jesus, then that marriage is not a gospel community. Because you can't have a gospel community when both people in the marriage do not worship Jesus. Such a marriage cannot display display Christ to the world. Such a marriage cannot even feast on Christ for their own worth, their own strength and, 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 and mercy. Such a marriage cannot honor and worship Christ. And this is a very important reason why the Bible forbids a believer, a follower of Christ, from marrying someone who's not a follower of Christ. You know, at the end of the day, this is not a rule. This is not a box to tick. This is not about obeying or disobeying a rule. This is about, am I honoring Christ and placing him as the highest in my life? Or is Christ a distant second or third? If a follower of Christ marries someone who's not a follower, he or she is dishonoring Christ. There is no other way to to put it. So if you're single, please, whatever may be the options outside, whatever may be the attraction, whatever may be the temptation, please do not get into a romantic relationship with someone who is not a follower of Christ. That brings us to the seventh observation, and I need to pause here because some of you might be shocked by this. So I'm going to need a moment to take a breather, uh, pray uh, for God's grace as I share the seventh point. Now bear with me. Please don't tweet anything before I finish. And please don't, please don't come to any conclusions before I finish saying what I have to say. If the ultimate goal of both singleness and marriage is a Christ-displaying gospel community, then there is great hope for believers who are same-sex attracted. Don't be shocked and don't rush to any conclusions. I'm definitely not saying that homosexuality is not a sin. There's absolutely no doubt in the Bible, in my mind, as our stand as a church, We have absolutely no doubt that homosexuality in all its forms violates God's creation design. It is a sin. The question, there's no doubt about that. That's not even up for discussion. The question that I'm wrestling with, and I want to invite us as a church to wrestle with, because I think in the society we live in, this is going to be an important issue. It has missional implications as well. The question I want to wrestle with is this. What hope does Jesus Christ offer to those who are same-sex attracted, Christians or otherwise? Let me step back. I want to just go back and kind of establish this first. Give me a minute. A lot of Christians think 
that it is impossible for someone to be born with a homosexual orientation. You know, I've heard this thought, you know, that, that you know, there's no, there's no such thing as someone who's born gay. That's wrong. Now, I, I disagree with this. And allow me to establish this biblically. The Bible is very clear that we are all sinful at birth. We are sinful even from the moment our mother conceived us. Psalm 51 verse 5. David says, surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We are all, without exception, born with sin embedded in us. And just as we are born with different kinds of sinful inclinations embedded in us, it is possible that in the fall, because of the fall and the resultant embedded sin, Adam's sin kind of flowing into all of us, it is quite possible that some people could be born with a sinful homosexual inclination embedded in them. This is not God's fault. This is not God's design. This is the result of the fall. This is the result of Adam's sin and the sin of every man and woman after that. So it is possible because of the fall, because the entire world is depraved because of the fall, creation has lost God's creation, beauty and and perfection after the fall. It is quite possible that there are some people who from birth have a homosexual orientation that is so strong that they may never be able to love, marry, and enjoy sexual intimacy with the opposite sex. What hope does Jesus Christ offer to those who are same-sex attracted? Because the Bible holds singleness as such a high virtue, Because the Bible holds singleness as a meaningful, valuable, worthy state of life, same-sex attractors can practice celibacy. The sinful inclination is real, but they're not going to give in to it. They can practice celibacy, abstain from sinful homosexual temptations, and enjoy the larger family of the church. This is possible only because the gospel, because the Bible celebrates singleness at a very high level. So just as some people, singles, give up marriage to serve the Lord, same-sex attracted people have the privilege and the joy of standing with Christ in holiness and in grace, in holiness, in acknowledging That homosexuality is a sin. But in grace, in the grace of the Lord, in the strength of the Lord, saying no to their homosexual inclinations and living a life of celibacy and singleness. I'm not talking theory here. If you want, if you're interested, look up a man named Sam Albury. A wonderful man. He's a pastor. He's an author. He's a thinker. He's he's served the church wonderfully well. And by his own admission, uh, Sam Albury has been same-sex attracted from birth. And he's never been able to find any interest in the opposite sex. He is same-sex attracted, but he has chosen a life of celibacy in honoring Christ Jesus. Because he sees and he knows and he believes that this marriage here on earth is not the ultimate. There is a true and a better marriage with Christ, the Lamb of God, to come.
you know, for some of us, this might seem strange alien. You know, my guess is if you're over 40 like I am, you're thinking, why do we have to talk about homosexuality in the church? But if you're under 40, if you're 20, 15, 16, you're going to college and you're seeing so many gay people around. We need to have a theology. We need to, not just a theology, we need to have the capacity to love these people truthfully. Truthfully. Not in a way that's, that dilutes the gospel. Not in a way that dishonors Christ, but in a way that honors Christ. So, New City and every church should be a safe haven and a place of refuge and strength where same-sex attracted men and women can live a holy life sanctified to Christ Jesus, just as the rest of us who don't struggle with that sin pattern can live a holy and sanctified life for Christ Jesus. So for far too long, Christians have fallen into two opposite errors. The first error is being harsh and condemning and honestly to being homophobic, to kind of treating that as, whoa. That's the first error. The second error is go to the complete other extreme, becoming too liberal and, and finding just ways to say that, you know, homosexual marriages are okay. It's not sin. That's, that's too liberal. That's the other, other extreme. And this extreme is just being too harsh and, and judgmental and, and homophobic. What we want is, is a middle ground, the gospel middle ground of both grace and holiness. Not dilute God's word, not dilute God's truth, but to be a community where we can offer strength and solace and comfort to be a community, to be a spiritual family that these people, because of sin, can, are unable to have biological family. The spiritual family can, be, can offer love, support, and strength for them that they might live a holy and sanctified life to Christ. Ajay and I, we've known believers, followers of Christ, who say, I can never be attracted to the opposite sex. And we've seen them, we know some of them personally, we've seen them serve the church faithfully. And if we as a church are not their brothers and Christ in their desire to honor Christ in holiness, then we would be failing as a church. So New City Church and every church must be true and faithful in calling out sin, but must also be graceful in loving and coming alongside and showing them pathways, showing same-sex attracted individuals pathways where they can live a life of honoring Christ in holiness. And that brings us uh, to the last observation that I want to close with. Christ Jesus was single, is now betrothed, and he's waiting. Christ Jesus was single. He is now betrothed. And he's waiting. I want to look at all three in just one minute each. Jesus was single. That's the beauty of the incarnation. He endured what every human being does. Because Jesus was single, he understands the pain of singleness. Every single, and sometimes even every couple is placed feeling even in marriage. It is possible to remain lonely in a marriage. It's possible. Highly likely to in the culture that we live in. He was single. Jesus was single. So he empathizes. I don't know if you remember this place in the Gospels where Jesus says, foxes have holes, 
Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the creator of heaven and earth, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, saying, I have no place to lay my head. Jesus knows the pain of your loneliness and your singleness. So you have a high priest in your struggle, in your singleness, in your loneliness. You have a high priest who's able to empathize with you. He's endured what you have. You don't have a God who is so distant and far off that he has no understanding of the loneliness you're facing. He is a God who has endured the loneliness that you are enduring. Christ was single. He is now betrothed. He is betrothed to us, the church. And how did Christ win his bride? He won the bride by paying the bride price, laying himself down, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. He paid the price to buy, purchase. The Bible uses the word ransom, purchase so often in talking about redemption and atonement. So Christ Jesus paid the price to buy the bride. The bride that Christ shows is not a beautiful bride. It's not a perfect bride. It's not a bride that is in any way worthy of Christ. He chose a lowly bride. He chose a bride that was unattractive, that is ugly. And as Ephesians 5 says, he washed her with a cleansing. And one day he will present himself, present herself, radiant, beautiful, without blemish to himself. Having paid so high a price, Jesus is waiting patiently. The Bible says even the son does not know when the time has come for, the Christ, for, Christ to, for him to come back again. Only the father knows. Jesus is waiting patiently. He's waited for 2,000 years and he's waiting patiently till the father sends him to come back again to have his bride. Do you see the beauty of this? His waiting can empower your waiting. His waiting is not just an example, but his waiting is, can empower your waiting. Because he and you are waiting for the same thing. Christ and you as a single and you as a couple are waiting for the same thing, which is the grand marriage, the true and the better marriage in the age to come that this age could never see, understand or experience. So this morning, whether you're married or whether you're single, would you commit to serve God in your singleness? Would you commit to serve Christ in your singleness? And would you commit to serve Christ in your marriage? Would you join with me as I pray for all of us? Father, we worship you, Lord. We worship you. We need you, Lord. Lord, whether we are single or whether we are married, I know this is one of the greatest struggles of our lives. One of the greatest battles of living out our faith. So we pray for grace. We pray for grace as a church, Lord, that we would, in your grace, live out both singleness and marriage meaningfully. We pray that as a church, we would be relevant to the world outside. Relevant not by diluting the gospel, but we would be relevant 
by applying the gospel to every new problem that every generation and every culture throws up, Lord. So in this whole area of gender fluidity and homosexuality, help us as a church to be winsome, to be truthful, to be loving, to be accepting, Lord, to, to show forth to the world that the transformative power of Christ Jesus that we have experienced. Help us. We need you, Lord. We can never be a true church, a holy church, apart from your grace, especially in the culture you've called us to be in. Thank you, Lord. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray.